Picture it. The year is 1995 and you have a movie set in Vegas and you have one of the biggest writer-directors of the time involved with your movie as neither a writer or a director. That seems like a good idea, right? Well, we're about to find out as we take a look at Destiny Turns on the Radio and prove to you that it's not just a movie of infinite possibilities. It's also not that bad. Welcome, welcome, welcome once again to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that takes a look at A grades in B movies. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're ready to uh, dissect another movie that uh, probably should have been dissected and left on the operating table. Uh, we are taking a look at Destiny Turns on the Radio today, and I have a very special guest. I may not have had a better guest in my life, and nor will I ever. Because guesting on today's show is my wife, Carrie. Carrie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. How are you? I, I'm doing fine. It's almost like I haven't seen you in the last uh, two minutes. I know, right? It's kind of weird to say, hey, how's it going? When, you know, we've been talking all day and locked down for the last two years. But hey. <laughs> Glad to be here. And the, the nice thing is that the fact that we can podcast together means we actually must get along because we've been locked down for the past year and a half pretty much together. So signs of a good marriage, right? <laughs> or we've watched a lot of really bad movies. Which leads us to this movie. Now, you were the one who brought up the movie Destiny Turns on the Radio. So why this movie? Okay, I have to say that it really is not that bad. I love this movie. I'm a huge Quentin Tarantino fan. I have been forever. And I actually really do love this movie. Now, I have to you know, fully disclaimer on this one here because I was looking around and trying to find a copy of the movie and we have it on VHS and you can't stream it anywhere. So we literally had to pull out the VHS tape now, which means as we get ready to trailerize this movie uh, and get you all hyped up for what you're about to uh, to to experience in the It's Not That Bad style. So, Carrie, I'm going to hand the reins over of the trailerize to you. So just grab that VHS box and trailerize it. Destiny turns on the radio, a high-frequency adventure. Quentin Tarantino is Johnny Destiny, a mystery man with nothing up his sleeve but a readiness to gamble with everybody's lives. Rolling with Destiny's dice are Dylan McDermott as Julian, a con who busted out of prison looking for his hot cash and his red-hot woman, Nancy Travis as Lucille, a lounge singer and Julian's ex who plans on staying that way, James Legros as Harry, Julian's superstitious partner who believes in fate in a form of a guy called Johnny and James Belushi as Tuerto, a hotshot Vegas casino owner who made Lucille and can break her. They all share one thing in common. They're in the hands of destiny. And when destiny places a bet, you'd better roll the dice or they'll roll right over you. Okay, I'm I am in love with all the cliches. I don't know what it is. I do love a good cliche. Um, Full disclaimer, this movie is full of cliches. It is, uh, it's almost like someone basically took all the cliches and put it into a script and, uh, and filmed it. So let's give you a little bit of background on the film. All right. So it's released in 1995, starring as, as Carrie mentioned, Dylan McDermott, Quentin Tarantino as the titular Johnny Destiny. Um, <laughs> I, I love when they basically name a character that you know the movie is. It's like, it's like all right, it's Destiny turns on the radio. And you're Johnny Destiny. Like, how do you sit there in a writing room and go, this is a good idea? Like, really? <laughs> what I would love to know is how the actors read the script and still signed on thinking this was a good idea. Every actor in this movie uh, deserves uh, hazard pay. I think for reading this going, if we just believe hard enough, this can make we can make this work. Um, but also, sorry, Nancy Travis, uh, James Belushi, and James Legro. Um, it's actually also the feature film debut of David Cross. Um, most of you will probably remember him from Mr. Show and uh, as Dr. Tobias Funk from Arrested Development. Um, we're also going to mention some other stuff that he was in a little bit later on. But David Cross, feature film debut uh, is this one. I'm sure he doesn't put that on his resume. Um, one of the things that I found interesting was that it's directed by a guy by the name of Jack Barron. 
B-A-R-A-N. Um, this was only his second movie that he directed by himself. It was also his last movie that he directed by himself. The first one he directed was a 1971 film called Roommates. And then there was this. Like, how do you sit there and go, the last movie I directed was Destiny Turns on the Radio. And people probably sit there and go, yep. Yeah, that's about it. Although he does have under his his um, IMDb a list of really pretty uh, pretty impressive movies like The Big Easy, Single White Female, Kiss of Death. Yeah, he was he was an assistant director or first assistant director on those as well as uh, Great Balls of Fire, which he also wrote the screenplay for. That's right. And um, Pronto, which was based on an Elmore Leonard book, which coincidentally also starred. James Legros from this film as Raylan Givens. Okay, we definitely have to talk about um, a little piece of information I found about Quentin Tarantino, who, um, as we know, um, has a big history with Jackie Brown and Elmore Leonard novels. But what I did not know until today, I was today old when I learned that at 15 years old, Quentin Tarantino uh, was actually grounded by his mother for shoplifting the novel of um, The Switch from Kmart. So um, another interesting fact that I read in Deep Diving on Quentin Tarantino is that he had vowed from that point that he would not share a penny of his movie money with his mother, who was non-supportive, I guess, of his uh, um, young writing and uh, screen um ambitions so this is why we let our kids do whatever the hell they want yeah. <laughs> literally like just do whatever you want kids as long as you give us money afterwards right you want you want to play video games you go ahead and do it you want to you want to write screenplays or make movies you go ahead and do it you want to hold up a bank just give us a cut and we'll be fine with it we'll tell the cops we didn't see you because you just <laughs> never know and you know i mean there are infinite possibilities as we've learned from this movie. So anything is possible. (laughs) Um, This was actually the first film that was released by Reicher Entertainment. Uh, Now, Reicher Entertainment didn't actually have that long a history. They only lasted really from, you know, they last from 93 to about 1999, uh, but they only released movies from here, like 1995, all the way to 1998. The last, of course, being uh, Christina Ricci's The Opposite of Sex. But uh, there were also, there were some, movies in there. I mean, Two Days in the Valley is out there, and that's actually not a bad film. Kingpin's out there. Escape from L.A. Like, we really needed a a sequel to Escape from New York, but, you know, bad movie, good soundtrack on that one. But they do have a list of of decent movies, but, yeah, if this is what you're starting with. Although, um, previously um, known as Bing Crosby Productions, before becoming Rusher, so... There, there, exactly. There is a history there, but you know, if this is how you're going to like, this is the new era. This is Rusher Entertainment. We're going to give you Destiny turns on the radio. We're sorry. We're sorry. <laughs> we're, we're, we're sorry. Um, as far as box office goes, I found this really interesting. So when this movie came out, um, it was in April of 1995. It came out the same weekend as Friday, like the first Friday movie with uh, uh, I can't remember who was in it. Uh, Friday, of course, had the biggest debut that week. Uh, when it came out um, of the movies that were new that week, this finished fourth of the new ones. It it, it didn't even crack a million dollars as far as box office in the opening weekend. And it's total, total worldwide box office gross was only 1.2 million. Now, I don't know how much they spent on making this film. That may have just been Tarantino's salary as it is. Um, so I'm going to assume that they didn't make any money off of this one. But let's get to the tomato meter. Because this is how we determine what movie stays and what movie goes. So this actually, this movie has a tomato meter of 17% from the critics. And the audience score is actually 21%. So it's one of those rare instances where the audience kind of agrees with the critics. I mean, uh, last episode for Mac and me, you know, the, you know, the critics hated it, but the audience kind of had a, had a, had a, a love of it. So it's one of those things where you see that sometimes the critics say one thing, the audience just goes against them, but this one, they're kind of in sync. So I'm going to put it to you right now, Carrie, before we get into the breakdown of this is 17% before, before we bust this one open is 17% from the critics, a fair guesstimate on this movie. Not at all. I think, you know what, this movie 
you have to definitely suspend all expectations. And a few brain cells. And just enjoy it for what it is. Um, again, I love this movie. It really has every bad movie cliche and it just kind of rolls with it. Um Everything from the actors will deliver a line and then just magically, I mean, destiny really is guiding, <laughs> um, you know, whatever to transpire. Um, Quentin Tarantino is the MacGuffin of the film. Let's yeah, be, let's following be the segue. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, you know what? Um, it's just a fun way to spend two hours. Okay, so let's, you talked about the acting. So let's get to the breakdown here. So I'm going to hand this, uh, the reins over to you. What were some of the good things about the acting in this film? Ooh. Um, well. Uh, the look on your face says <laughs> it all. <laughs> You're pained just thinking about this. I've, I've, been, um, I've been advised that if I can't say anything nice to, to just, you know, stay silent. Um, but that's not why we're here. I think, you know what? Um, first of all, Jim Belushi. Yes. Really, <laughs> as... Um, as Jim Belushi, I mean Tuerto, he was uh, uh, the your quintessential stereotypical casino owner. Um, the thing I like about Belushi in this one, though, is and he does this a lot. He does this a lot. He can play characters who aren't exactly you know supposed to be likable, and yet somehow he makes them likable. Like by the end of the film. You know, at, at the start, he's just, you know, this typical casino owner trying to pick Nancy Travis's songs that she's going to sing. And he's singing Viva Las Vegas, clearly after a night that they didn't have sex and try and just smarmy, just crotch grabbing smarmy. But yet by the end of the film, you sit there and go, he shows the humanity of Absolutely. Tuerto. Like Jim Belushi is, I'd say, underrated as far as an actor to begin with. Um, obviously, he's had a number of big roles, so he's not that underrated. But he, you know, he actually really took the dialogue, which was hurting to begin with, and and really felt it and didn't make it seem camp or bad B movie dialogue. Right, he was the good fellow with a good heart. Um, I think in the end, I, he was probably the most likable. Um, I mean, I love Quentin Tarantino, and. As Johnny Destiny, you just, you see him appear on screen and you just know something's going down. Like, (laughs) and it's so, I don't know, everyone, I think it was such an amazing cast for what it was. And they, the actors had to have known that the lines they were delivering were just camp and they just played around with it and made it fun. It was a script with infinite possibilities. And if you haven't seen the movie, you have to see the movie to recognize that this is, you know, one of those phrases that keeps popping up through the entire movie. It's a city of infinite possibilities. Like everyone seems to say it. It, It's I've I've lost track of the cliches. But one of the other actors who actually made this to the dialogue for the most part bearable. There were scenes where you just sit there and kind of shake your head and go, oh, dear God, please don't overact. But James LeGrow um, as as a. as uh, Dermot Mulroney's buddy there. He, he actually. Thorough. Yeah. 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 Th- yeah Thorough. Um, he, he wasn't that bad. Like I had never really seen him in anything else. I, I'll, I'll be honest. Like, you know, you, you look at the front of the box. It's like, okay, I know Dermot Mulroney. I know Tarantino. I know, you know, Belushi and Travis and who the hell is this guy? Right. <laughs> but he actually, there were times when I'm like, okay, you know, like even when he's spitting out some of the dialogue that, you know, is just like, you know, and we're going to talk about the script a little bit later. But, you know, when he's spitting out some of these lines and you're sitting there, it's like, oh, dear God, you actually make this sound normal. Like any out of any other mouth, this would sound like I, I should be calling, you know, the, the men in the white coats and they're going to bring you away. <laughs> like, OK, spoiler alert, though, the minute that he said, I have a very ba- bad feeling about this, you just know. Like <laughs> nothing good ever comes from the line. I have a very bad feeling about this, but uh, let's just take a moment to talk about Bobcat Goldfway. Oh God! As Bobcat Goldfway, <laughs> as he ever was in any movie that Bobcat Goldfway has been credited, um, he he played 
an undercover, not so undercover, totally uh, predictable cop. Um, uh, what is it? John Smith. Yes. John Detec- Smith. Detective John Smith, which, which is actually his alias. Nobody right? would have seen that coming. Although he does have the the most Vegas experience, I think, out of anyone in this movie. Um, it, it's not really... I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil the scene. It's out in 1995. If you haven't seen it by now, screw you. Go watch the movie. So I'm gonna spoil this anyways. So Bobcat Gold, we basically spend most of the movie uh, tied up with an apple as a ball gag on a bed. Uh, it's one of those like you know quarter put the quarter in vibrating beds. They they went through about ten dollars worth of quarters to keep that bed vibrating. Bobcat Goldthwait, the Vegas the Vegas experience. <laughs> Yet what they never addressed was how he got out of it. I'm a little worried. I'm I'm just going to pretend because they, they did that. That was that was something that was kind of did someone go in, take pity on him? It had to be Johnny Destiny. Oh, it's completely Johnny Destiny. It was his destiny. See, I could I, I could just pick. I wanted to see that scene now. I want to see like Johnny Destiny open up the door in his Tarant like in his Tarantino best going. I hate to see a guy like you in a situation like this. Now I could put another quarter in here or I can set you free. What floats your boat? It was the coyote. Oh, God. The coyote <laughs> took the apple. Because it was hungry. Yeah, of course. I. I <laughs> What's with the coyote? Re- okay, when random animals start appearing and disappearing, you know, like, this is the point where the, where the marijuana kind of hit when they were writing the film. Um... Uh, and David Cross, Dave, again, we mentioned that it was his first film. Uh, I, I will admit, it's kind of hard not to watch this movie and see him in it and not think that he's playing the exact same character that he played later on in Alvin and the Chipmunks as the record producer. Yeah. Right? Like, it was, it's almost like watch Destiny Turns on the Radio and then watch Alvin and the Chipmunks. You recognize that it's the same character, basically, which means that Destiny Turns on the Radio is the prequel to Alvin and the Chipmunks. It's the Chipmunk verse. Okay, thank you for that. Because was Johnny Destiny not the prequel to, um, Little Nicky's uh, Deacon reprisal of Quentin Tarantino's role in Little Nicky. I'm wondering if that's where he went at the end of the movie. I think so. It's a multiverse. Right? <laughs> Mind blown. I, I actually didn't put Tarantino down on my on my good acting list because it's one of those things where, and you're going to hate me for this. You're going to hate me for this. I don't think he's the best actor. He's he's a good direct he's he's a really good director and I and I love the way he writes dialogue for his movies but he directs his movies well and he writes his movies well but when he's not the one in total control it has a habit of going off the rails a la Destiny turns on the radio a la Little Nicky cuz I'm sorry Little Nicky's Little Nicky's going to get its own podcast episode I think cuz that movie sucks so and bad. Siskel and Ebert would agree. Um <laughs> and that's pretty much you, you had asked me earlier about the um the critic reviews and pretty much every single cuz you have to think about the time that Destiny turned on, turns on the radio it's 1995. It was literally right in between um the the fame of the rising fame of Quentin Tarantino. This is peak Tarantino. Um, yeah, and and interesting, he um, was starting to to make a lot of waves with Reservoir Dogs. Um, he had signed on the dotted line to do Destiny Turns on the Radio right before, literally in 1994, um, right the before door, yeah. Pulp Fiction won at cons. So, um, that, I mean, who knows, right? Had it literally been the next month, this might not have been a Quentin Tarantino, um, um, starring Quentin Tarantino movie. I mean, I wanted to like Nancy Travis in this. I did because because I loved her and so I married oh, I an ex murderer. Like, I love her. like she's great. Not in this movie, but she's great, but not in this movie. She is so talented. She's incredibly talented, um, and I think you know very much her um, theatrical training um, from uh, the circle. Um, Circle in the Square uh, Theater uh, School really helped her in this role. But she had that look. I mean, God love Nancy Travis, right? But she had that look 
every time she was delivering like one of those one of those lines of dialogue, right, where, where she's sitting there and, and, you know, the mouth is saying one thing and the eyes are saying, dear God, I can't believe these words are coming out of my mouth in this order. See, I loved that about her. I think that, you know what? She literally didn't even have to be saying anything at that very moment. All you had to do was just watch the screen and you kind of knew. You knew what was going on and... She she basically were, she she stood there on camera and said, "I got pregnant from you by having sex with you in a dream," and didn't come off looking like like a complete and nut job. Made it believable. While Dermot Mulroney's on a on a slide in a playground <laughs> at a drive-in movie theater. Oh my god, this movie is so Vegas. <laughs> um, that, those are my acting notes. Do you have anyone else on your on your on your good acting list? Well, you know what? We um, we covered so much ground. Um, I think, okay, I have to give honorable mention to Vinny Vitovici. Love the name. Oh, my God. The name, actually, interestingly enough, um, was a um, tip of the hat to um, Caesar's We Came, We Saw, We Conquered. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that... That in and of itself, I think when I read that, I had like chili bumps. I mean, the actor was horrible, but <laughs> I, but the character name alone. If if you're not going to watch this for Johnny Destiny, you gotta watch it for Vinny Vinny Vici. I think you know what it was so quintessentially um, a of of what you would expect of a Vegas um, talent agent. You know, he had that like swarthy. You know eating copious amounts of food and sweating all over the place kind of um he and had it down and pat. Constantly, constantly scratching his ass he had it down pat however what i did not see coming was the you know the the very quick turnaround of you know him absolutely falling in love with uh, with lucille after her performance well of course he was johnny um, destiny was there <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it was it was absolutely destined from the start um <laughs> But I mean, the music, let's just take a moment to, to give nod as well to um, the, the two songs that uh, uh, Lucille had performed in this movie. Um, I, I had to, I had to look that up because they were so good. Yeah, I had to look that up because when we, when she was singing the first song, Baltimore Oriole, mm-hmm. I'm like the the voice. You know, how sometimes when, you know, the, there's a singer on screen and the voice doesn't match it, like it just doesn't fit. Right. And I had to look this up. So it wasn't Nancy Travis singing, you know, so it was here by the name of Eleni Mandel. Um, like before she's got a number of albums out there on Spotify, but they picked, I think, the perfect voice for her, for Nancy Travis, because, you know, sometimes that happens. Right. You, yeah. you got an actress. They can't sing. And it, it reminds me of uh, Josie and the Pussycats. You know, because they had Kay Hanley from Letters to Cleo and her voice, I think, fit Rachel Lee Cook's, uh, you know, on camera performance fairly well. And in this case, especially during the Baltimore Orioles song, um, uh, Eleni Mandel's voice was a perfect fit for um, for uh, for Nancy Travis. Exactly. And let's give nod to that old black magic that literally had it was it was that pivotal scene where, you know, Johnny Destiny's going around snapping his fingers and everybody's having that turnabout moment. Um, and I mean, again, you know, the the vocals and the words of the song fitting the scene were just absolutely perfect. The uh, the music is definitely, I think, the the star. And, and I know, like, especially in the beginning of the film where Dermot Mulroney wakes up in, in the desert like all good Vegas desert, you know, denizens have done at some point in time. And, like, for the first half of the film, the score is phenomenal. Like, it's it's got, like, that that almost dirty, not lost highway, but almost like almost like you could picture Robert Rodriguez playing, playing the guitar through the score. And then also, total shout out, Combustible Edison appears on the soundtrack for this film and if you're a tarantino fan you'll remember the combustible edison was the group that did the soundtrack for four rooms right well i mean that's what i wanted to point out was the opening scene was very 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 akin to um from dusk till dawn Mm -hmm. that scene with just like the the 1969 was it buick I don't know what the car Is was. Is it a 68 or a 69? Oh, it was a 69. It was a 69. They, they determined that, that it was indeed um, uh, Thoros 
old car. Anyway, again, not to spoil too much about it, but... Um, yeah, well, Dermot Mulroney kept on thinking it was a 68, but, which you know what that means. And of course, come on, the Roadrunner, beep, beep. Yeah, which, which if, you, if you think it's 68, that means you do me and I'll owe you one. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we don't let the kids listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the music was actually really good. Um, the script, you know... I, you know, I, I've made joke about the script kind of thing. And, you know, this was written by, and it was the first film uh, by the writers, Robert Ramsey and Matthew Stone. All right. Not Matt Stone, not, not Matt Stone, Trey Parker, Matt Stone. So Robert Ramsey and Matthew Stone. So this was their first actual film that they had written. Um, they, and they actually went on to write uh, Soul Men, which starred Samuel Jackson and Bernie Mac. So they have that, that, that Vegas showman style script, but you know, if you like campy dialogue, if you like, you know, cli- you know, 50, 50 cliches per, you know, per, per minute of film kind of thing, uh, it, it literally sounds like, you know, you know, it, it's that trope, right? Where every movie in Vegas, you know, you know, it's, it's a mystical place where all angels have dirty wings and even the bad guys have good days. Like it's, it's, it's these very mystic, you know, mystical, esoteric kind of Vegas is the be all end all kind of place. But did it not sound like some like 1950s film noir? Like literally like the script is everything's a magical place and anything can happen here. And, you know, the, 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 the Tarantino like Vegas, that's a city. It's like, yes, yes, it is a city. It's not a state. It's not a county. It's a city. But I have to imagine that that would have been the draw for Quentin Tarantino, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine the pitch meeting? You know, okay, Mr. Tarantino, uh, we, we have this script that uh, y- you get to, you know, show up and basically with a snap of your fingers, have control of other people's lives and destiny. I, I think one of the things that... um maybe it's just me right but the script at times felt very much like it want like it was a, a discount quentin tarantino script like it's almost like the, as soon as they found out that tarantino was going to be in the film the writer said okay we have to make it sound like a tarantino film which yeah when you when you watch a certain you know certain actors on screen you want them to sound like themselves like i'm pretty sure every script writer has to change their dialogue the minute they find out that Christopher Walken is playing their character because you know, he's got to sound like Christopher Walken every time he says a word, (laughs) but that's the thing. They write it for Christopher Walken and it felt like they were writing, trying their best to write Tarantino for Tarantino. And I'm not quite sure if it came off. Well, I mean, he sounded natural when he was delivering his lines, which means that Tarantino kind of put his all into it. So it it shows that they were close. It shows that they they watched Tarantino films and did their best to make Tarantino sound like Tarantino. Well, it's interesting you say that. I mean, with the, you know, really badly um, attempted Southern accent. Mm-hmm. Like, it, w- it was like Quentin Tarantino acting as... I don't know, a stereotypical Quentin Tarantino I know from the Dur- South. Dermot Mulroney's accent changed kind of halfway through. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like anyone who complains about Elizabeth Olsen's, you know, Sokovian accent, shut up, watch this movie, and then go apologize to Elizabeth Olsen. She does damn good job. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's, it's interesting, too, that um, as far as the writing, I just have to um, add this little Easter egg that... Um, that at first when you when you see when you hear it in the movie now um Jillian's dad shows up Poppy and um you kind of don't know why he's there um but he does start talking about um being diagnosed with having an overactive um pineal Pineal gland gland. (laughs) and and it has absolutely it's completely out of left field and you're kind of left going the hell does that have to do with anything? <laughs> right. However, however, doing some research um, on the pineal gland. Uh, Ooh, we're gonna get we're gonna get medicine here. Right. So it actually is um, the base of the brain that's responsible for um, hormonal production and 
akin with melatonin and sleep. Dr. Carey, medicine woman. So, <laughs> so two things with this. Um, it, uh, it can be related to an altered state of consciousness um, and heightened awareness. So again, uh, very much in line with making this um, the script and, and a lot of things in this movie make sense. I feel it was actually, you know, poignant to the to the script and also helps explain. Again, you mentioned that um, that, you know, impregnating uh, Lucille in a dream. So if it has a um, so if, you know, Poppy has this overactive pineal, which, you know, it's later said that, you know, Jillian might suffer from, it might just explain that scene and how it came about. So let me get this straight. Dr. Carrie, medicine woman here. Let me let me, let me get this straight I'm here. I'm grabbing at straws here. <laughs> <laughs> if you have an overactive pineal gland, you can impregnate women through your dreams. Not exactly, <laughs> but <laughs> which makes more sense than some of the dialogue in this film. It's one. It's one step closer <laughs> to explaining how the scene might actually become see, possible. I can see someone now trying to use that as a defense. You know, in, in some, in some <laughs> paternity case, and it wasn't gland. me, Your Honor. Uh, see, I have an overactive pineal gland, and I've impregnated the entire neighborhood <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> While they sleep. <laughs> oh, I feel violated and dirty all at the same time. <laughs> oh, but yeah, and it, it's true. Like, like all of a sudden Poppy shows up like, I, I had that moment like as if we were watching the room. It's like, who the fuck is this guy? Like characters just kind of show up for no reason whatsoever. They don't motivate the plot. They're just there spout out some like pineal gland bullshit. And then that's pretty much their job. I disagree. I think there's more to him. I think there's a definite connection with that coyote that, what, did was he attacked by it? Did he I impregnate don't know. the coyote? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, let's not forget that he had, uh, well, he probably had more insight of the, um, the, the pool of, uh, Oh, what was it? They, they There's a big pool it. of glowing yellow liquid and people are sticking their feet in it. That, yeah. That's probably not what you want to do in Vegas. The devil's watering hole. <laughs> the devil's watering hole. That That's basically what the, that, that means they peed in the pool. I say that was just the predecessor to Hot Tub Time Machine, really. They peed in the pool. <laughs> it was glowing. It was yellow. They peed in the pool from his overactive pineal gland. <laughs> um... Um, can we talk about the, the costume design for a second here? I mean, the set design, it's Vegas. The, they didn't really do much with Vegas except for, you know, peed yellow into the pool for set design. But costume design. Who the hell dressed Dermot Mulroney? Like, you have to understand. I'm not quite sure whether he's a lounge cowboy, uh cowboy porn star i'm not quite sure what he's dressed as thorough explained that he explained where he got the you know god-awful yeah, pe- it was pe- it people, cowboy people leave or people die and he gets the stuff either way which is a, uh, i will i will fully admit that's a great line for for a movie set in vegas i thought that was there's one of those like little script nuggets that was great um but it, it was gaudy it was gaudy um but the costuming it's 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 one of those things with Vegas where you can go over the top with Vegas or you can play it subtle. Like these are just normal people who happen to live in Vegas. And surprisingly, they did very well by keeping it. These are just normal people that happen to live in Vegas. You know, yes, the cops were dressed like, you know, with suits that look like they were off the rack and probably off the wrong rack. Um, That's, that's just a trope. Um, Nancy Travis, I thought like her, like her wardrobe, I think, through this whole thing went really well. Again, you can go over the top with Vegas glitz and glam, especially for a singer in Vegas in glitz and glam. I thought that it was elegant. I thought it was subtle. I thought you know, they dressed her perfectly for this. Um, but costume design. Yeah. And uh, I mean, Bobcat Gulf was, uh, you know, John Smith was definitely wearing what you would expect of Bobcat Goldfoy playing an undercover cop. While tied um, down to the bed with an apple ball gag the, in his mouth and vibrating. Yeah, <laughs> the uh, the um, the amount of plaid 
that uh, he um, combined he had, was he had plaid brilliant. on plaid. Yeah, like that. He he was basically wearing like the lumberjack orgy of clothing. And the black socks with sandals. While tied up to the bed, to the vibrating bed with an apple ball gag. It was yeah. <laughs> right now people are listening to this going, oh dear God, what the hell did they do to Bobcat? And no wonder we don't see him anymore. Um, the editing, the sounds, like there wasn't really that much in the way of CGI and special effects and whatnot. Um, what are you talking about? The pool? With the lightning? It was, it was glowing in Maryland, it. Maryland uh, spe- Motel. You, you spend enough money in uh. your own pool, you get it to glow. Just don't make it yellow. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but as, as far as the directing goes, the cinematography, um, I found it very, actually very restrained. Like, I know movies that are that are done in, in specific decades kind of thing, they're going to have a look. Um, we talked about this on the Mac and Me episode. You know, 80s movies had a look. 90s movies around that time also had a similar look as well. Um, but they didn't go super glitz and glam, which, which I found kind of interesting. The minute you put a movie in Vegas, you expect like, uh, you know, the bright lights and the, the fountains and all of the stock footage of Vegas that you can get. But it was very much... Vegas by day. Agreed. And even the casino. Um, I mean, you know, uh, having been to Vegas, um, it was almost kind of like this was a tiny pub, like just off of the strip that they had used for the location of their Vegas casino where Lucille, um, you know, performed on that tiny wee stage. Like this was... You know, this was definitely North End Vegas. This was not. Yeah, this, this was off the off strip kind of thing. But I, it's it's interesting when you go to places that are known for their nightlife. When you go to places that you expect to have a look, and you know, we've we've traveled to L.A. and to Hollywood. Like when we traveled to L.A., we stayed in Hollywood, and by night, Hollywood was kind of what you expected it to be. You know, nightlife, people on the streets. Like you know, by day. Hollywood's very different, very freaking different. You know, like you sit there and go, oh, you didn't make it home last night. And you say that about every two blocks. Vegas by day is kind of like that same thing. You go out at night, you got people walking down the streets, you got people flicking cards at you kind of thing. Like Vegas by night is exactly what you expect Vegas by night to be. Vegas by day is very different. And especially when you get off the strip. You know, when you when you're away from the action and, and any Canadians who are listening to this, Niagara Falls is kind of the same way. You know, mm-hmm. you you walk around like, you know, main area, main tourist area, Niagara Falls. It's very much exactly how you expect it to be. You get off the beaten path of Niagara Falls and you're like, oh, crap, where the hell are we? Right. <laughs> so it, it's very different. I, I, it felt almost refreshing to get away from the Vegas glitz and glamour. Yeah. Um Definitely. I mean, I mean, there were times where I, I found myself, again, in the back of my mind questioning, are they in Vegas or are they kind of in, I don't know, like... If, if, like Reno, if Reno. you will. <laughs> exactly. You know, that, that, that's the thing. Or, or Lake Tahoe or someplace other yeah. than Vegas, right? Still Nevada, but it's it's Vegas, right? So, you know, but it, it gave it at least a bit of a signature look. You know, and it, it felt like... You know, when you think about, or when you go back and watch, say, like Pulp Fiction, right? Um, the camera shots are very static. It's not a lot of shaky cam. Um, you know, they do put quite a bit of detail into the scene to kind of give you the setting kind of thing. And it felt like the director was very much trying his best. Like, that's got to be a weird thing. Like, it's your first film that you're directing in, like, over 20 years. And... Quentin Tarantino, like again, peak Tarantino era. Quentin Tarantino is in your cast, and you, and you have to direct him. Like, mm, how that's... how how do you how do you sit there and like fight that imposter syndrome? Like, okay, he just won the Palm d'Or, and now I'm I have to direct him. Who the hell am I to direct him? That's an interesting point that I didn't even think of. Um, yeah, I mean, you know what? Like, um, I tend to wonder the other side of it, and. Like QT's, um, I don't know, like almost deep ingrained, you know, want to like <laughs> say, no, 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 no. This is how this scene should go. Mm-hmm. Right. So you've got to wonder. You got, it would be an interesting uh, 
thing to to have looked back and I do I do wonder because you know Tarantino does come across as classic Tarantino right he comes across as you as you would expect Tarantino to come across so it makes you wonder if like as a director you know do you give the director direction or do you just sit there and let him Tarantino all over the place like that's that's tough that had to be a tough call at that point yeah, and it kind of makes you wonder if James Barron maybe, I don't know, wanted to say, you know, maybe we should uh, try to cut that Southern accent and just just be Quentin Tarantino. Just be yourself. Just bring yourself to the role, please, for the love of God. <laughs> and, and, and that's the thing. Like, when you hear someone trying to pull off an accent and you're sitting there going, is this really right for the character? Um, and it doesn't quite sound right coming out. Like I, I've seen clips of Benedict Cumberbatch trying to do like a Southern accent, and it, it sounds weird coming out of him. I've seen David Tennant try to do an American accent, and it sounds weird coming out of him. Like I want the Doctor to sound like the Doctor. I want David Tennant to sound like freaking Scrooge McDuck. Okay. Um, do I want Tarantino to try to sound like some? you know, mystical Southerner that has happens to be the MacGuffin of Vegas. I'm not quite sure, but that's gotta be a tough call. That's- but I, th- I think, uh, I don't know, maybe, you know, knowing the script and kind of running with it, I think it kind of, it worked. I mean, it definitely, um, there were parts of the movie where I think just that little bit extra kind of made it a little more legit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I mean, Quentin Tarantino, now that I look at it, in that role of Johnny Destiny as Quentin Tarantino, waving his arms and talking frantically at a mile a minute about, oh my God, this, this scene has to be this and it has to uh, speak to you this way. Um, and we're going to kill every motherfucker in the room. Like, that. <laughs> um, it would not have fit the role of Johnny Destiny. Mm-hmm. And I think it was almost kind of like a more subdued version of Quentin Tarantino. And, and I think it worked. Again, I love this movie. See, see now, now I want that scene where Johnny Destiny goes to Bobcat Goldthwait's motel room and, and just opens the door, sees sees Bobcat like on the vibrating bed with the bubble gag. And this one go, all right, time to bring out the gimp. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, that, that would have worked perfectly. <laughs> oh, dear God. Uh, okay, so it's time. It is time to name our MVP of the film. So, Carrie, I'm going to hand the rings over to you. Who is your MVP of Destiny turns on the radio? Ooh. I've got to go with Quentin Tarantino. I think, you know what? Um, This movie would not have been the same with any other actor in that role. I, I can't possibly have pictured it being I probably wouldn't have endured the two hours if it weren't Quentin Tarantino so I do have to give him mad props I think for me the MVP is Jim Belushi because again I I I love Jim Belushi as an actor I think you know especially in the 90s like Jim James Belushi in the 90s was very much like again at his peak like he has a way of just not necessarily you know stealing the scenes but you know soaking up what dialogue he's given and making it seem like yeah that's exactly what this character would say um it makes you feel for the characters that maybe you're not supposed to feel for it even the scene where he's trying to justify grabbing his crotch rather vociferously if i must say um it actually sounds normal coming out of this character because He's established that this character is a little over the top to begin with, but not in a manic, psychotic kind of way. It's just like, yeah, I'm a Vegas you know, casino owner and I live large and I speak large and I grab my crotch. Why? Because it's large. Right. That's kind of it's probably what he's saying with it, too. But, you know, but by the end of it, though. By the end of it, there's the scene where he's sitting beside the, 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 the girl that's crying. I can't remember what her what her name is. And he's just so withdrawn and you know like inner emoting and all of a sudden you've gone from like i'm not sure how i feel about this character he seems kind of smarmy he's not the kind of character you kind of like by mid-film he's like okay i kind of feel for him he's kind of in a no-win situation and by the end it's like 
just to watch him, you know, inwardly emote and be able to like inwardly act, you've you've completely redeemed this character from what you have, whatever you felt from him, you know, horribly singing, you know, Viva Las Vegas at the beginning to like all of a sudden not blowing up at you know at nancy travis for choosing Dermot mulroney not blowing up at his world kind of falling apart but just inwardly accepting reality you know and, and making the best of and just almost paying it forward i agree i think there was a bit of a childlike characteristic to him mm-hmm. and i think you kind of see him as you know almost like a 10-year-old with way too much money and way too much time on his hands Mm -hmm. and in a position of, you know, he's supposed to be authoritative. He's supposed to be the bad guy. Again, he's like the good fellow with a good heart because he... He's the big Vegas mover and shaker kind of thing. Like, the trope would be for him to like, okay, Dermot Mulroney took my girl, I'm going to shoot him, bang, bang, once in the kneecaps, right? Uh, But he didn't. That would right. make it a Tarantino film. Right, exactly. <laughs> Not a Jack Barrett film. It's a Tarantino film at that point. You know, um, you know, you expect him to like, you know, screaming at, at Nancy Travis and all that, but all, at the, in the end, all he wants is for her to be happy. So even though he's cashing in her chips, right? Like, like, but he still wants her to have a good life. Like, Agreed. And yeah. I, think, I think he kind of knew. I mean, if you really look back on their relationship um he had to have known you know going into it three years ago she was um Jillian's girl and she would always kind of hold that place or he he would hold that place in her heart Mm -hmm. um and I, I think he kind of he kind of knew maybe that you know um she wasn't in you know she wasn't playing with her full deck. She wasn't in it to win it. She wasn't, her entire heart wasn't in. And uh, yeah, I just threw out like two cliches right there. So <laughs> I think I'm actually inspired and. Uh, um, your, your mind has been, um, it's it's your I've overactive pineal gland. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, now, before we get final thoughts on this film, I, I, will, I do have to point out because we watched it today before we recorded this and, you know, Went went to our corners, wrote our notes, kind of thing. But I had to go back and double check. And yes, Johnny Destiny did actually turn on a radio in this movie. So the the title isn't just you know like you know you know oh it's Destiny turns on the radio. No, he actually did turn on a radio at some point. So you know prophecy fulfilled. You know the movie. You know <laughs> it, it it put forth what it actually said it was going to do. So final thoughts on this film. Destiny turns on the radio. Is it not that bad? I love it. I I hold firm in, in that um, I love the campiness of it. Um, I also, you know, aside from being a huge Quentin Tarantino fan of his entire catalog, um, both of directed and written screenplay and acted, whatever. If it has Quentin Tarantino, I'm all for it. Um, but... Um, Damn, where was I going with that? I also, I love road trip movies. And I'm very sure that we'll probably wind up talking about my, you know, movie collection later on. But, yeah. um, by, by the way, she's not picking the next movie. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it this movie, again, it started out, um, you know, this hitchhiker the, the found in the, in, in the Las Vegas, Nevada desert. And, uh, you know meets this Johnny Destiny who always kind of seems to be in the right place at the right time, you know, as, it, as, as it's destined to be. Um, but it had that road trip kind of, it had that karmic value that you're like, oh, okay, so there has to be more about the relationship and the dynamic. And then you get to know um, the past history of, you know, why these characters all kind of connect and, and, I think it's great. I, I can't be fun. I will admit that I would love to somewhere down the road see Quentin Tarantino revisit the character of Johnny Destiny, but he's a radio DJ and he's spewing all of this, you know, like total cliche, but like it's a call in show and like he's basically, you know, telling everyone what they need to hear, you know, even though he's never met them and somehow he knows because Johnny Destiny 
is your destiny. The Vegas on Files. De- destiny on the radio, literally. <laughs> that, that, there's the sequel that we need, Destiny on the radio. You know what? I, I really, I would love if they made a sequel because I want to know what's on the other end of that pool. Mm-hmm. I want to know where they went. Where does the pee go when it gets flushed down? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and now, if you're actually thinking of watching this movie, good luck to you. This is, it is hard to find. Again, uh, the movie's actually been uh, has it was never put out on DVD. It, it's basically been discontinued. Uh, so if you ever find a copy of this, this is one of those movies where if you find a copy still in the packaging, hold on to it. Because somewhere down the road, people are going to be like, oh, that Tarantino guy. Uh, I heard he acted occasionally, you know. All of a sudden, you've got this copy of, of that film. So this is the kind of movie that might actually somehow be worth some money someday because it's one of those things that has been discontinued. But if you find a good luck, it's probably going to be on a VHS. Like our 99 cent uh, VHS find. Oh, God. Yeah, I think I think we found that in a, I think it was a video 99. Yep. It, it wasn't a blockbuster. It was a video 99. In a like, random movie bin of discarded, probably like classic gems. Oh, yeah. You had to you had to picture the gold scene. like. I'm I'm one of those guys that like you know you see like a a, a video store at the time or a UCD shop or a used book shop and I'm like honey we're gonna t- you know we're gonna turn in here because I need to I need to look at the bin because I'm that guy and you know she's like okay because she loves me and you know we go to the we go to the bin and it was almost like you know like Simba being held up for the for the for the jungle to see like it was like oh. the suitcase in Pulp Fiction when it opened and all you see is that golden glow mm. it, yeah which was clearly water from the pool at the time yes <laughs> <laughs> see it's a Quentin Tarantino universe Destiny Turns on the Radio is part of the Tarantino verse all you needed was someone smoking some red apple cigarettes and you'd be fine. I like it. <laughs> uh, Carrie, thank you so much for this. Uh, I'm sorry that you made me watch this film again, but you know what? I'm it, not. <laughs> <laughs> next time I'm picking the movie and and you're not going to like it. I can tell you that right now. Um, but to our listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode of It's Not That Bad. Look, you, if you want to find us on Twitter, you can find us at Not That Bad Cast. Okay. And if you have a movie that you would love for us to take, you know, break down, dissect, and find only the good things about. If there's a movie that you want defended, or if there's a movie that you think is beyond defensible, let me know. Not that bad cast on Twitter. Um, Let me know. We will subject ourselves to it and work our way through it. This has been It's Not That Bad, the podcast. My guest today, Carrie, thank you so much. Thank you. And we will catch you next time. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.